Hi, this is David Barkertley, host of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Just want to make sure everyone knows that my first book, Save Me Please and Other Stories, is available now on Amazon.com, and that Save Me Please with Please spelled P-L-Z. This book collects 20 of my best short stories, along with 13 illustrations and more than 40 pages of author's notes explaining how the stories came to be written and published. All of these stories previously appeared in some of the top markets for fantasy and science fiction, including magazines such as Realms of Fantasy and Weird Tales, and books such as New Voices in Science Fiction and Fantasy the Best of the Year. Over a 100 people have bought the book already, so huge thanks to everyone who's done that. I had a really fun conversation about the book with John Joseph Adams, Tom Gerentzer, and Zach Chapman back in episode 500, so definitely check that out if you missed it. So again, the book is called Save Me Please and Other Stories by David Barkertley, and it's available now on Amazon.com. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barkertley. Hello, and welcome to episode 505 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing Larry Niven's classic 1970 novel, Ringworld. And this will include spoilers for everything in the book, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Rajan Khanna, making his 20th appearance on the show. He's the author of the post-apocalyptic novels Falling Sky, Rising Tide, and Raining Fire. And his short fiction appears in magazines such as Analog, Lightspeed, and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. His articles have appeared on Tor.com and LitReactor.com. So Raj, welcome to the show. Glad to be back. The next up, we've got Abby Goldsmith, making her fourth appearance on the show. She's a co-host of the Stories for Nerds podcast, and her short fiction has appeared in Escape Pod and Fantasy Magazine. Her Torth series of space opera novels are available now on Wattpad, where they've racked up over 65,000 reads. So Abby, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. And also joining us today is Mercurio de Rivera, who you may remember from our feature interview back in episode 305. His short fiction appears in magazines such as Asimov's and Analog, and in books such as Solaris Rising 2 and The Best Science Fiction of the Year, Volumes 5 and 6. Fourteen of those stories are included in his collection Across the Event Horizon from Newcon Press. His story Beyond the Tattered Veil of Stars recently appeared as a podcast from Dust Studios, featuring the voices of Jillian Jacobs from Community and Justin Kirk from Weeds. And his first novel, Worgen, The Alien Love War, is out now. So, David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, David. Great to be here. Okay, so let's start off with Raj and have you tell us about your history reading Ringworld. So, like you, there are a lot of uh, gaps in my science fiction sort of reading history, which, um, you know, Ringworld was definitely one of them from when I was younger. But I knew the name of it and I knew Larry Niven and I knew he had been involved in some comics related stuff uh, that I did read growing up. And it was something that I always thought was going to be cool. And I, I, I felt like I missed it. So about like six or seven years ago, when I was commuting for work, I decided to download a whole bunch of audiobooks of like big novels that I'd missed to try to catch up on them. So this was one of them. I did uh, The Forever War, uh, Gateway by Fred Paul and um, uh, Rendezvous with Rama. So this was one of them. And I read it. I, I listened to it then um, and then re recently reread it for this for this podcast. Um, 
Uh, you, and and that so so I've done it twice now, but I did miss it when I was younger. Um, but of course, you know, I'm sort of familiar with the the whole ring world concept, which has sort of been used many times since then. And so you had never read any Larry Niven novels or stories before Ring World. I, I think he wrote. I, I think he wrote a Green Lantern like graphic novel that I definitely did read. Um, but I hadn't read any of his like fiction. No. And have you read any Larry Niven since reading Ringworld? No. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So I mean, because uh, oh, what? Yeah. No. No. I mean, and we can get into the reasons for that <laughs> later. But even uh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Because I actually I read a lot of Larry Niven growing up. Um, you know, he was my dad's favorite science fiction author when I was growing up, and so I've read at least eight Larry Niven books. Some some of them are collaborations hmm. that I can think of. Uh, but I'd never read uh, Ringworld because my dad actually said, oh, don't read that one. His review of it was kind of, he says, like, they go to the Ringworld and then nothing really happens. So, <laughs> so I never I never read Ringworld. But then, yeah, I'm trying to, like like you said, fill in some of the holes in my uh, classic uh, science fiction novel reading. So I was like, okay, it's time. You know, and I was, you know, um, I was like, even if, you know, even if this book's a little slow or whatever, it'll be fun to go back to the the Known Space series because I read so much of those uh, as a kid. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. And then how about Abby? What what was your uh, what's your history with with Larry Niven and Ringworld? Yeah, I mean, I actually met Larry Niven a few times when I lo- lived in Los Angeles. Um, there was a science fiction fantasy society there, and I was part of it. And he would show up sometimes, um, but I had actually never read him, <laughs> so. Yeah, a little bit similar. I mean, I, I've read a number of sci-fi classics, and this was just one that I guess fell in that weird kind of post-1950s and 60s, so it wasn't quite <laughs> in the classic period, but it wasn't quite 1980s either, so I, I think I had just missed it. So when you when you met Larry Niven, do you, do you, does anything stick out that you that you talked about or that happened or anything? Honestly, he was just a participant in the club, so he wasn't giving speeches or or anything like that. I mean, he just seemed friendly. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I met him one time. He uh, when I was doing a, I was doing a, a MFA like screenwriting thing at USC, and he came. There was some sort of um, panel. It was like him and somebody else. Uh, so I talked to him a little bit before. Um, before the event so that was cool because you know because i grew up reading his books i actually had a cat named kazin growing up so (laughs) i was able to tell him that um but yeah i think that's that's the only time i ever talked to him actually i might have met him at a convention once too now that i think of it but um um but yeah maybe only one or two times uh and then how about david what was your your history with uh niven and Ringworld? well you know i read it probably when i was um either in late in high school or early college so it really was one of the formative books for me. I mean, it was probably one of the first genre books I read. Certainly one of the first books that created that whole sense of wonder, as they say. Sense of wonder, as they, as they say, one word. Um, and it lit a spark in me. After I read Ringworld, I, I read other Niven books. I went on to read Clark and Asimov's and Le Guin, and Frederick Pohl, and so forth. Uh, but strange enough, I, strangely enough, I never went back to it. Um, so it's been many decades since I've read the book and I've forgotten most of it other than, you know, the Kazinti and um, uh, the ring world itself. So all of it, it was, it was almost like reading it anew. Uh, a few things I remembered, but uh, as I reread it, but, but it was a, a brand new experience. I, I was looking forward to it because of that sense of wonder, because it was a formative book for me, but I was also a bit trepidatious because I was worried that it would be ruined for me. Um, 
So uh, that's my history. I, I met Larry Niven as well at a, at a convention, just briefly at a convention in Seattle. And he was very nice. I, I told him, you know, that, that, that his books had inspired me to become a writer myself. And he was very gracious. Do you remember like, how, like anything, like why did you pick it up or how did you get interested in I think it? A, I think a, fr- a friend of mine recommended it. A friend of mine who was an avid science fiction reader said, try this. Um, so I gave, you know, he said it's, it's about a gigantic world with a, you know, a star that's, that's encircled by a, by a disc that, that's, a, that's a world. It's 93 million Earths or something crazy. And that was enough to get me interested in reading it. Um, and, uh, well, he was, he was wildly exaggerating because it's only 3 million <laughs> Earths. Okay. Well, okay. That's, that's it's 93 million miles from the, is the you know distance from the star to the that, ring? Um, I'm lo- in that case, I'm no longer impressed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and so so like I said, I was I mean I've I've always loved Niven's ring uh, known space um, series, and so if you don't know, I mean he wrote a lot of stories and novels that are all set in the same universe that the Ring World is set in, and um, and there's you know it's um, I think it's in the year what, 2850 or something, um, ring world. But anyway, it's, it's centuries in the future and they have all sorts of cool stuff. There's, uh, transfer booths where people can teleport all around the earth and people sleep between these in the, in these sort of floating in zero gravity. And, uh, there's like body paints and free love. And, uh, I don't know. There's all, there's all kinds of really cool stuff. It's, it's just, it's this sort of, um, I saw it described once as this libertarian future that most of us would give our eye teeth to live in. And I'm not actually sure what eye teeth are or why anyone would want them. But, um, you know, it is like, <laughs> really cool. I mean, that, 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 that phrase always stuck in my mind that, you know, yeah, like I think a lot of people would, would want to live in this, in this known space universe because there's lots of adventure and, you know, faster than light ships and all this cool stuff and aliens and um, I remember, David, um, when I interviewed you about your short story collection, we talked about some of our favorite aliens and how I've always thought of Larry Niven as, you know, being as good as anyone I've ever read at coming up with aliens. Yeah. So uh, do you, you agree with that? I do agree with that. And I, I loved um, the puppeteers. I mean, they were fantastic. The Zinti and the, the Kazinti and the puppeteers were the, my favorite characters in the book. I, I, I mean, Louis Wu and Tila, and Tila less, less so. Um, but, uh, they're, they're fantastic aliens. I mean, one of the things, one of the traps you can fall into when you have, a, an alien like the puppeteers, aliens like the puppeteers who are defined by one trait, which in this case is they're cowardly, is that sometimes it's difficult to create gradations in personality among the, among the species. And he did, luckily we don't, I mean, Niven avoids that problem here because we're only exposed to one puppeteer, um, so, but, but, you know, but the overriding trait is one of um, cowardice and, and manipulation. Those, those are the two main traits. Um, but I found that fascinating. And in the, in the Kazinti, I thought, well, I viewed it as a precursor to the Klingons of the next generation. I mean, the whole sense of honor and, and bloodlust, the voice reminded me very much of Worf on yeah. Next Generation. That's interesting you said, because, you know, um, Larry Niven did write a script for the Star Trek animated series in which the, and so I've never, I don't think I've ever actually seen it, but the, the Kazinti show up. So they're like, weirdly, they're also in the Star Trek. Um, you know, if you consider the original animated series canon or not, but they're, they're in that. 
So that is cool. A- that is really cool. I, I remember seeing that, but I, I don't recall the episode. I probably should have rewatched it before this, but uh, but I remember thinking that that was very cool. Yeah. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if the people, you know, the writers who wrote Worf had read Niven and you know, mm-hmm. maybe had that in mind. I mean, but I mean, the Kazinti, they, they are kind of a sort of generic warrior alien race. So it's hard for me to say how um, you know, it might have been like more original, you know, back in 1970 or, or when, you know. Right. Um, and there's a whole, there's a whole series of man's man's Kazim war books because I remember accumulating a bunch of them on my bookshelf and I never read them but but there were a whole a whole bunch I believe. Oh yeah, I, I've only read the first one, but it was up to like I don't know thirteen or something last last I checked. Um, but uh, but yeah, so so Abby, I guess coming to this, what do you do? You agree with us about the aliens? You think this cool aliens in this uh, in this book? Um, I, I mean, I liked they were a good, a kind of like good foil. Like the Kazin was a good straight man character for the party. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, for me personally, just because I have read a lot of sci-fi, it's like, all right, it's a cat in space. <laughs> 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 We've all seen cat people in space. Um, right. Yeah. But, but like you said, I don't know how new that was in 1970. Um, it might've been anyway. Yeah. You know, so he was a fun character. I like that. He was just very, no sense of humor, just very straightforward. Um, yeah, and the puppeteer, you know, it's just cute. It, it's like, yeah, it's weird. He's got two heads. His heads are kind of staring at each other sometimes. <laughs> like that's his expression of confusion is to yeah. like look at him, look at his <laughs> himself. Um, so I just, yeah, that was fun. I like that. Yeah, let me let me just explain because the puppeteer, just even just morphologically, I think is one of the coolest aliens that I've ever read. So. Uh, they they kind of have like my impression is they kind of have a body like a mule sort of where there's two legs in front and one leg in the back, and then their brain is kind of in their torso and they have this um mane like a horse down their back, and then they're they have two tentacles that end in and like each one ends in one eye and a mouth, and so they have these sort of two heads kind of, and then they can use their mouths their their mouths kind of have little nubs that are almost like fingers, and so they can uh, manipulate things very very finely with their mouths and so yeah it's just like no other alien i can uh i can think of uh and so yeah so just in terms of how they look they're really cool and how they they're they're sort of cowardly and yeah like uh david said manipulative and stuff uh it's just all all really interesting yeah i like how they, they curl up into a ball yeah <laughs> when, they're, when they're afraid if people want to see what they look like if you google barlow's guide to extraterrestrials which was a book that came out decades ago where it was just like paintings of these different alien races from different science fictional works. Um, you could probably see some of the images online and there's a pic, there's one of the puppeteer, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So, I mean, so, so yeah, like I said, I really like this world and I was looking forward to going back to it. And and when I started reading this, I was totally into it. I was like, Oh yeah, I remember all this stuff from, from when I was a kid and, you know, I read books like, uh, yeah, like the man in wars, which gets referenced pretty heavily in the early chapters of this. And, um, there was, uh, a, you know, one of my f- actually still f- favorite science fiction stories is called Neutron Star. Uh, Niven has this character named Beowulf Schaefer, who, who's a sort of, a, you know, adventurer and goes exploring. And in the second Beowulf Sh- Schaefer story, which is called At the Core, he flies to the center of the galaxy and reports back that the, the galaxy is sort of exploding. And, uh, this causes the, the puppeteers who are very cowardly. It's a, they're like, we're out of here instantly, even though it's going to take 20,000 <laughs> years for this to happen. So I remember, you know, reading all that stuff as a kid. And then 
uh, all that stuff is referenced in this in this novel. And so I was like, wow, this is I was so excited uh, reading the early chapters of this. But I don't know how it comes across if you haven't if you have no prior you know, if you have no prior uh, familiarity with uh, with this world. So, uh, so Raj, what did you think? Like, do you find the early chapters as thrilling as I do or uh, or is it less I, exciting? No, I, I think the, the beginning of this book, I think, starts out really strong. And I was actually most engaged by this world that you were talking about, this far future with the booths and the kind of earth culture and the different aliens. And I, I think the, the explosion at the core of the galaxy is actually, you know, one of the more intriguing and, and uh, I, I love that part of the book and I love the kind of ramifications and how everyone's like, but it won't happen for 20,000 years. But then, you know, what I found, especially on this reread, what I found really um, spot on was his, point about the fact that humanity would wait until the last possible moment and then scramble to try to come up with something. And I'm like, there's so many, you know, that was this, the early seventies. And I mean, you know, we're dealing with that with global, you know, climate change and, and things like that going on now. So that felt like, you know, very prescient at the time. Um, so all of that stuff I liked, uh, there are other parts of it that didn't work for me quite so well. So. Yeah, well, I have a feeling we're going to get into that, but yeah. um, I want to st- want to start off on a positive note here because you know, like David was saying, with the sense of wonder, you do just get this amazing sense of wonder. I feel like in the early chapters mm-hmm. of this book, where yeah, it's like time scales of tens of thousands of years and light years yeah. and weaving the galaxy and and all this stuff. And I mean, like the um, the puppeteers we find out have decided to because they're they're so cowardly, they're afraid to uh, take hyperspace to go into hyperspace. And so they don't, most of them don't travel, don't want to travel faster than the speed of light. And so we, we find out that they've actually taken five of their planets and put them all into orbit around each other and are actually flying all five of their planets uh, out of the galaxy. And so it's, it's like big stuff like that, that I think is, uh, is, is, is really cool for in, in this sort of, and it's, and it's all taken really seriously. And there's a lot of, you know, science, like real science. And I mean, there's a lot of made up science too, but there, there's a lot of real science and, uh, it's just yeah, it's just sort of the, that kind of mind expanding stuff. Yeah, um, and I, you know, I think I think that from like a, even from a from a craft perspective, I was looking at those beginning chapters, which I agree are, are very strong. They really worked for me. Um, it's it's a it's a masterclass in in world building. I mean, and I realized that this book is called Ringworld, and he, later on he literally creates a world. But the figurative world building in that, those first chapters. He does it through the lens of uh, our protagonist, uh, Louis Wu's 200th birthday party. He's hopping ar- around the planet using those transfer booths uh, to, to celebrate in all different parts of the world. And that's a terrific device to, you know, to show us that future. And it's, a, and it's a homogeneous future where because of these transfer booths, all cultures have kind of disappeared. The, the distinctions have been kind of sanded down. So that this is, there's this homogeneity that exists that's kind of, Created a restlessness, at least in our protagonist, Louis Wu. Um, so I thought that was, that was actually kind of, kind of brilliant. And I love the, the whole idea of, you know, you're gathering the team. It's like, like a heist movie where you're, you're collecting the members. Hmm. Um, so I like that. I like that aspect of it. So I, I really love the beginning. Yeah. And the, uh, this, I don't want to get, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but the, the transfer booths I've always really liked because. Uh, reading those stories as a kid, because he, he has lots of different stories in which the transfer booths figure prominently. And there would be things like, yeah, like there's this, you know, all the the culture kind of disappears because it's so easy to travel anywhere. 
And then there's something, I, I think it's, I forget if he uses the term flash mobs, but that's basically what it is, where, you know, some some people will start rioting in, in some city and smashing windows and stealing stuff. And then people all over the world will see that that's happening and they'll all teleport to that place and join in. And so you can get these just gigantic riots um, that just erupt out of nowhere. And so even though the teleportation technology is obviously highly speculative, speculative, if not completely impossible. He predicts some of these social phenomenon that we've seen with the internet. Um, and so like once, once, you know, like flash mobs and like internet pylons and stuff start happening in real life, I was kind of like, oh yeah, I remember reading about this as a kid. This is just like the stuff Larry Niven talked about with the transfer booths. So I've always thought that was really cool. Um, but yeah, so the, uh, yeah, but, but so our main character is this guy, Louis Wu, and um i guess uh i guess raj what do you tell us tell us more about louis wu well i was in my mind i was saying louis wu just because that felt like <laughs> me too <laughs> more 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 futuristically in larry nivens like i one of my personal just taste things with him was just some of the names that he came up with i was just kind of like really but um but i i get it it's just like a you know like the names of the planets you know like we made it or whatever I think was one of them. And, and I get what he's going for. Didn't really excite me, but that that's cool. Um, but yeah, so Louis, Louis, let me, let me say about the Louis versus Louis thing. So yeah, I was, I was going to say we should have a vote on this, but, um, sounds like it's going to be two versus two. (laughs) Um, but, uh, cause, cause I heard in an interview that, uh, Niven pronounced it Louis Wu. And then I went and I sort of Googled that. and, And it says that like in one of the books, it says, it's Louis, and then in the third book, it says it's Louis, or maybe the other way around. Uh, so it sounds like he even changed his mind or got confused sure. or about what, which one it was. So uh, I think you could probably go with either. Um, so I, I prefer Louis, yeah, which, actually. <laughs> not, with, not that Raj mentioned it. So, yeah, I, okay. I, I so think, let's just go with we'll go with Louis then. Yeah. So when when Louis introduced, I, I I you know I again I agree with David that like it, it, he seems like this perfect protagonist. You know he's been around for a while. He apparently is prone to going on these sabbaticals, as they call it, where he just gets away from everything and kind of becomes an explorer. And I thought, oh, what a great protagonist to have because you know he's been around for a while. He's kind of seen things change. He experienced a lot of stuff. He's smart, so like you know all the way through the novel, we're getting his interpretations of things, and he's always like on the verge of figuring things out slightly ahead of everyone else that helped piece together the, the, you know, the big parts of the later part of the novel. But I, uh, I think my, my attraction to him as a character like died off significantly, the longer we got into it. Um, he, he really enjoys having lots of sex, uh, which is made very clear throughout the whole entire novel. Um, and. And that bothered you? (laughs) <laughs> it, it, it's just it's just like relentless you know no, like no, i feel I like we get it we get it you know and, and totally oh, agree, i had issues with him for lots of other reasons than that. yeah yeah no no uh, there there are other reasons yeah there, but that yeah, was just like one example and <laughs> i feel like that that re- that basically reflects on niven as an author and you know what you know and he's also the guy who who famously wrote the essay you know man of steel woman of kleenex which again you know i i kind of can't like ignore the link between those two things but um I just so don't let like, you just, know. Let's just let's just explain. So that's it's about like Superman having sex with Lois Lane and how right. and how his sperm would, would, would she rip. would she survive the experience? And, right, and and what would happen to those sperm? And 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 it's one of my pet peeves because it's sort of like these authors sometimes who are like really knowledgeable about 
space and physics and and stuff in a way that like you know the ring world stuff in this book like is way beyond my i mean i I, he explains it but it's sort of like okay i'll give you know i'm I'm willing to go along with this because it sounds right but and i'm sure he did you know a lot of the thought experiments along with that but when it comes to biology it's just this weird thing and 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 that not saying in this book it's about biology but there are some elements of that and sex and you know like this is getting away from louis but you know how many non-sentient female like species with non-sentient females are there introduced in this like three and it's like crazy to me but um yeah i don't know i think i think louis quickly becomes unlikable i actually you know i I know david you said you like the the two aliens i my problem one of my problems with the book is that everyone just became not unlikable but i didn't really have any attachment to any of these characters after a, a certain point past the early parts and um, I think that what this novel becomes is a, is basically two thought experiments that get sandwiched together and the characters are there to help, you know, explain these parts of the thought experiments, but that they don't really, for me, become fully fledged, likable, you know, relatable, or even interesting characters, uh, after that initial point. So... Yeah. I mean, I, I, I wanted to sort of try to keep things positive for as long as I could. But <laughs> oh, I mean, I, sorry. I don't, yeah, I don't. Dis- ask I don't, somebody else. Ask somebody else. <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't disagree really with anything you said there and we'll, we'll get, we'll get into that. But, um, but sticking with Louie Wu for a second, just Abby, you said that, like, uh, what did you, what were your overall, like initial impressions of Louie Wu? Well, I mean, initially I was very lukewarm on him. He, he likes to have orgies. He likes to have parties. Um, that's not really great. You know, that, that's not enough for me to start rooting for a character. <laughs> <laughs> I need a little bit more, you know, like like some kind of hero vibe going on. He he wasn't in feel for her. Yeah, it's like the, the screenwriting book. It's called Save the Cat, not Save the Orgy, right? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, go ahead. Um, I mean, that's that's the initial impression. It got worse, you know, as, as others have said. Um, but I guess we probably shouldn't get into that yet. Yeah, I mean, let me just, I'll just say that the, the setup of the story is, yeah, there's this guy, Louis Wu, as as Raj mentioned, and he's like 200 years old, and he's, every once in a while, he gets sick of people and decides to go off, you know, and explore some far off place in space. And at this point in the chronology in the world, nobody has seen one of these puppeteer aliens, uh, at least since before Louis was born, I think it says. And so he's surprised one day when he is stepping through a transfer booth and and this puppeteer says it wants to recruit him for this mission, this mysterious mission that it can't tell him anything about initially. But it turns out to be uh, this puppeteer is going to go along with a, a Kazin and Louie and this other human woman, Teela Brown, and they're going to explore this ring world thing. And that's kind of the setup of the story. Um, and, and, so, you know, and, and he's, he's so bored with the, with, with the world. and He's lived 200 years. He's living in this homogeneous world. And I think that he, he finds some excitement in being in the presence of these aliens. So I found that interesting. And I also found it interesting that he serves, he, well, maybe this is going a little bit further into the book, but he serves as a mediator between, an effective mediator between the Kazin and the, um, the puppeteer. So, so I like that part about him just to keep it positive. Cause yeah, it does, yeah. I, agree, I agree with everybody else that it gets negative uh, pretty quickly. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, like, so overall, you know, I was really, really into this. Like, like basically what happens, yeah, they, they get recruited to go on this mission and they go to the puppeteer homeworld for a little while and then they go to the ring world. And most of that stuff in the er, in the early chapters I really liked. Uh, I did start to sort of, you know, dislike 
Louie and dislike Tila a little bit. But um but overall I was pretty um you know pretty positive on the book. And then but I you know, I, I sort of knew my dad had said, Oh, once they get to the ring, ring world, nothing really happened. So I was kind of braced for that. Um and I did once they got to the ring world, um, you know, there there's it starts getting very, very detailed about just the the sort of engineering of the ring world. And on one hand, I was impressed by that, but on the other hand, as a as a piece of entertainment, it, it started getting kind of boring. Uh, you oh, know, my, just how my, my reaction oh, was the opposite. Yeah. Okay. Like, I mean, I, I thought the beginning was boring, and once they got to the Ring World, I was like, oh, like this is more like the Land of Oz. <laughs> it's you know they're meeting strange people, they're running into really strange phenomenon. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. And and all all the engineering, you you thought all the engineering details were were good. You didn't it didn't go there wasn't too much of that for you. Uh, it was too much, but it was too much in the beginning as well. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, well the book does it does really change. I think I I think the the Land of Oz thing, I think that's really well put because it does like it seems to me to yeah, to change completely once they Well, it's sort of like the the book sort of to me to my mind it starts off as a you know, pr- still pretty cutting edge hard science fiction novel, uh, and it sort of like bec- by the end, it sort of becomes like um, a Princess of Mars or something, uh, right. yeah. and it sort of like transitions in stages, getting you know less and less hard SF and more and more kind of planetary romance or you know pulp science fiction or something. Um, but how about Raj? What were your? How did you feel when they sort of start first get to the Ring World? Well, I mean, I think, you know, t- taken like on its own, the ring world concept, especially coming as, I mean, he was the first person to popularize this concept. You know, now we've had Halo and there was a recent episode of The Mandalorian where this kind of, you know, object w- was in it, uh, you know, a similar type object. Yeah. And, well, and I, know, as far was, as I know, he didn't just popularize it, but he actually came up with the idea. Right. Okay. Any- yeah. That, I. I thought so, but I wasn't completely sure. And, 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 you know, it's sort of a riff on the Dyson sphere, which existed, but it's an entirely different concept and visually and the whole idea behind it, you know, and again, just calling a novel ring world. I think that's part of the allure of this novel. And I think it's a really cool concept. And, you know, I was just trying to wrap my head around how it would work. And, you know, he, he obviously explains a lot about the engineering, like you said, but a lot of it was just like, I, I think, you know, he even talks about how it's hard to conceptualize the, the vast, um, size of this thing and how it, it works even for them in the book. And that was one of my issues. Cause I was just like, okay, I can picture the ring. I can picture the star in the middle and these plates, but like uh, some of it was just a little bit beyond me. And I think, you know, like, I, I think part of my disappointment with the ring world is that he introduces this fantastical kind of creation and, you know, you think you're in for all these kind of amazing things. And then there's just a lot of like, you know, people on motor, you know, like flying bicycles and hanging in suspensor fields and like being stuck in places and walking and stuff. And I get that it's about the interactions a lot of the time between the different characters. But to me, like I said, those were, those characters weren't compelling at that point in time. And the stuff that happens on the ring world isn't quite as like exciting as I wanted it to be. Um, and I also really, maybe this is just me cause I know I don't have a very visually based brain. So this is often an issue, even like in Lord of the Rings when they're walking through Mordor, but like trying to imagine how this all looked and the scale of things and like what these kind of floating cities and the trailing threads and all these things looked like, 
Um, you know, like the fly cycles he describes as a flying dumbbell. And it really seemed like it was just like a round dumbbell flying through the air. So like, I could imagine that, but some of the ring world structures, I just felt amorphous to me. And so I, I, I had a hard time really grounding myself in what was going on there. Yeah. Well, and let me just explain. Yes. Yeah, so, so the ring world, it's like we said, it's 93 million miles. Like the, you know, the, the ring is 93 million miles from the star. So it's about as far from, or I think it's not technically 95 or something, but it's about as far from the sun to the ring world as, as it is from our sun to earth. And then it goes the entire way around in a ring and it spins to create gravity. And then there are these plates in a ring, sort of a smaller inner ring uh, between the ring and the star in order to create a day and night cycle. So the rings spin at a different rate than the, the, the plates spin at a different rate than the ring. And that creates a day and night cycle on the, the ring. And yeah, I, I agree with you that a lot of the descriptions are, are kind of hard to understand. I mean, I think they could be clearer. I think one thing that's, that you need to keep in mind is that in all of the illustrations, uh, you can tell that you're on a, like on the cover illustrations and stuff, you can tell that you're on a ring. You can see the, the ground stretching out into the distance and then going up into a ring. And that's not actually what the book describes because this thing is so massive that when you're on it, it just looks like you're on a flat earth and you can kind of see the arch, you know, right. in the sky, but, but you can't see the, you can't see the bends in the, at the horizon going up into the ring. And so that's why people on the ring worlds where we find out civilization has fallen and everything, they don't know that they're on a ring because uh, they just think there's this arch in the sky and they live on a flat earth because that's what it looks like to them. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I thought that the um, that I agree that some of the some of the science was a bit much. I mean, I, I appreciated the fact he did his research and that I'm sure this is um, scientifically accurate in terms of, you know, the, the way he conceives of a, a way to generate gravity and um, uh, the distance from the sun and the, the way he creates night and day cycles. Um, you know, I, I appreciate all not that. Not quite, but I, I, <laughs> I appreciated that the, the hard work, and um, uh, but I thought it was I did I thought it was a bit much, and, and it did get a bit boring. Um, but um, for uh, for me, the the greatest one of the things that created the most sense of wonder was before they landed, when they're underneath the ring world, and they're just. Trying to, they're imagining the world just based from its underside, from their protuberances and from the indentations. And they're saying, here's, a, here, you know, here's an indentation that shows that there's an ocean that's bigger than the earth or a mountain that's bigger than the earth. Or, you know, just as they're, as they're underneath it, I was totally blown away by that. And then um, he uses a, kind of a, the same description over and over again about this infinite horizon that there's no end, you know, there's an infinite horizon. You can't see the horizon. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, I agree that it's it's hard to grasp. And then, and then when he talks about the arch in the sky, um, I'm sort of getting it, but it's not quite perfectly clear. But I, I, I get a sense. Um, but but you know that that's where the sense of wonder comes from. This is not a you know where Raj said, well, he didn't quite you know, he didn't quite picture it, but he understands it's it's about the interactions between the characters. I don't think it is. This is not really <laughs> this is not really a character book at all. Um, it's, it's a, a book about, it's a setting book and it's got, and I think that what's lacking is, uh, it's not really, it needs a stronger plot. The plot is really what needs, what needs work. Um, in my opinion, um, cause right now I think it's, it's kind of, um, relying on setting alone. Um, so that's my two cents. Yeah. So, so Raj, you were going to say something about the science not being 
100%. Oh, it, only just because it's not due to anything that I know, but I, I was looking this up as, as I was reading it. And apparently, um, I think it was a group of MIT students who basically said that there's no way that that, that could stay in a stable orbit the way that it was constructed without, you know, eventually it would hit the, the star and kind of fall apart. So apparently he wrote the sequel to this, which is I think Ringworld Engineers, as a way of like, I don't know if it's addressing that or taking that into consideration or using that as a device, but but that was the main well, one of the main criticisms. That yeah, came they, out I think he correct he corrects it by having like he puts starships underneath the ring to support it or something. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I haven't read the Ringworld Engineers, but I just just in my research, apparently, yeah. So he he fixed it by having the Ringworld designed with attitude jets to hold it in place, and then people have been um you know scavenging those to to use to use the jets and so the ring world is becoming unstable because people are taking away too many of the attitude jets oh, right okay um but yeah and yeah but there's this famous i think it was like that the 1970 or in 71 world con or something where a group of mit mit students were marching around chanting the ring world is unstable the ring world is unstable <laughs> Must have been embarrassing for him. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, the, the embarrassing thing, apparently, is that in the first edition of the book, Louis Wu, you know, it's his birthday. It's his 200th birthday or whatever. And he's trying to extend the day as long as he can. And so he's going, he's jumping east. Right. Uh, through, and and yeah. that's the wrong. He should be going west to right. extend the day. So <laughs> N- Niven was apparently pretty embarrassed about that. And uh, But he says, you know, if you have one of those editions where where that's still – and he fixed it in the, in the next edition. But he says if you have one of the editions where that's uh, that's wrong, that they're they're worth money because they're, they're kind of rare <laughs> at this point. That's great. Um, but so, Abby, so you said once they got to the ring world say, – say more about kind of just what did you like once they got to the ring world? Anything sort of stick out in your mind? I mean, I, I agree uh, with David about seeing the underside of the ring world and the relief map. That was interesting. Um, there's this is we're discussing spoilers, so it's fine. Um, there was a few things like like that giant storm that looks like an eye. Um, you know, it turns out that it's like a, a hole was punctured in the ring world's foundation material, and um, you know, and, and the air is being sucked out. It's creating this crazy like whirlpool storm effect that looks like a human eye. Um, you know, the thread, they, they like accidentally cut a thread of the plates that were, you know, and it's like super strong thread that, um, you know, it's, it's practically invisible. It's so, so thin, but um, just interesting stuff like that. You know, they're dealing with all kinds of crazy, um, you know, floating cities. Of course, that's pretty standard in sci-fi, but um yeah, just like the, and just the scale of things. He keep mentioning that, um, you know, the speed of how fast they're traveling and like the scale of how huge this world is. You know, oh, it's an ocean that's the size of the Earth except bigger. Um, it's a mountain, the Fist of God mountain. It's like, you know, huge. It's bigger than than <laughs> what they said. Ten, it was like a, a thousand miles high. Um, just things like that. You're yeah, like, it's, wow, it's that's so high crazy. that it pokes out of the atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah, so definitely. I mean, the things I love about this book are yeah, like like basically, I love the puppeteers and I love the the concept of the ring world, and you know, pretty much everything else. I'm, I'm I have pretty mixed feelings about, but but those two things are legitimately awesome. Um, I also thought the, the the bioengineering aspect where they're considering like whether the puppeteers have been puppeteering the human race and the Kazin race 
breeding them for, to become more docile and become more lucky. You know, there was quite a lot of, of discussion about that, and that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, getting a little... I guess we might as well get into that now, but yeah. Um, oh, uh, go ahead, Rob. Can I just say, just in terms of the, the setup of the, the ring world, what I did, I did really like the way that they set up what the origin of the fist of God is, you know, because he drops hints along the way, you, you know, it's not on the original maps. Why, you know, there's a lot of questions. Well, why would they do that? You know, how big really is it? And then at the end, that becomes, you know, revealed what exactly it is. And it becomes a key component of them sort of escaping the ring world but i i liked the way that that unraveled because i felt like he dropped enough like pieces along the way to make it seem like oh you know this is sort of mysterious and what is the thing and then i found the answer to be satisfying so like stuff like that that came out um you know where there was a question as to why is this like this and then you'd find out what what the actual truth was i think that some of that was was really nicely done in terms of mystery it wasn't enough to i think to sustain you know necessarily everything else but but i thought it was nicely done well it's interesting because david was saying like oh the problem with this book is the plot and you know when i was reading it i was it was kind of a slog for me to to finish this book and and that was my impression was that the plot's not that great but then when i went i went and read the plot synopsis on wikipedia and i was like oh actually just reading the plot synopsis the plot actually seems fairly good you know Mm -hmm. um so i don't think the problem is the plot per se i just think that the book's probably a lot longer than it needs to be, mm-hmm. but I think really the characters, you know, it's just like, sp- like just moment by moment, I don't enjoy spending time with these characters. And I think that that's really what sort of drags the whole book down for me. Um, so I think that, but I think like a novella version of this with more compelling characters, I think would work really well. Um, well, you, well, you know, a hallmark of some of the, the classic sci-fi books by Clark and Asimov and, and by Niven is uh, oftentimes they don't really develop characters. It's, it's all about the MacGuffin and it's about the sense of wonder. It's about the setting. It's about other things. It's about the plot often, but uh, it's not unusual for them not to have well-rounded developed characters. That's something that I think that science fiction has generally improved on over the decades. But- now, nowadays plot, uh, per, you know, characters are as important as everything else, but I'm, I'm not surprised that the characters aren't well developed. And, and, but you and, know, Maybe it's just the execution of the plot that I'm talking about. Then I, I that, think maybe so because like I I, I listened to this around the same time I listened to Rendezvous with Rama, which again they're going to an alien object that's been discovered. It's not a ring world, but they have this sort of internal structure that is like cylindrical. And again, you're right that the character development is very sparse in that book. But the sense of wonder and the kind of way that that book unfolds to me was far more engaging and compelling and interesting than this one. And so the, you know, lack of characters, I mean, cause it, it covers so many different characters. There's never a chance to get really deeply into any of them, but that didn't seem to harm that book for me. So I think it's, I think it's just sort of like there's, there's so much like, you know, there's the character stuff doesn't land. There's, like I said, I think the ring world is more of a thought experiment that serves as this backdrop, but without, without taking full advantage of, of, or without making some of that stuff come alive. And then I'll just say it right now. I think that luck evolution thing is bullshit and I hate <laughs> it. So, um, I, I'd, like, I'd like to discuss that because yeah, yeah. Like, I have a lot to say about that. Okay. Before we get to, before we get to that, let me just, let me just respond to, to David. I, I, I don't think that the, 
I, I don't have a problem at all with books in which characters aren't the like science fiction books in which characters aren't the focus. Like I'm totally fine with that. And if it was just that the characters aren't the focus and they're not that well developed and so on, I don't think I would have that much of a problem with it. I, I, my problem is just that I, I find the characters actively like Louis Wu and Teela. I find I find actively annoying. Um, like, actively unple- unpleasant. I, I, I see that point. I, I concede that point actually that they became not just uh, undeveloped but unpleasant. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So um, I don't know. Do we want to talk about the characters being annoying, or do we want to talk about the luck, uh, genetically engineered luck thing? I mean, they're um, they're into her. They go Okay. Well, so, so, so well. Okay. So Abby, why don't you say uh, you you said you have some thoughts about the? Let me. Just, I guess let me just explain. So, uh, at like halfway through the book or so, we find out that the the puppeteers have been manipulating the the humans and the Kazinti. And that they had um, engineered the Mankazin Wars so that the humans and Kazinti would be fighting each other and, and leave the puppeteers alone. And then also use this as an opportunity to do a, a experiment in breeding, where because so many of the more aggressive Kazinti died in these wars, they were trying to see if they could breed the Kazinti to be more docile. And they also... Uh, manipulated there this is sort of an overpopulated future where there's you have to get like permission to um reproduce and stuff or procreate and so there's this um lottery uh to decide who's allowed to have kids and so it turns out the puppeteers have sort of been manipulating this lottery in an attempt to see if they could breed humans to be luckier so uh apparently there's genes for psychic luck and they're trying to (laughs) Uh, get more, you know, to, to sort of, I don't know, get, get people who are lucky to breed with each other and create more and more luck, genetically lucky humans. Okay. So, so, so explaining that. So, so then Abby, what, what are your kind of thoughts about that? Yeah. Okay. So like Tila objectively is not all that lucky, you know, it's something that's told repeatedly, but very rarely shown. Um, <laughs> she ends up with a, a man who resents and fears her, doesn't mourn her when he believes she's dead. You know, that's Louie. Um, then she ends up with a barbarian who treats her like a slave. You know, she falls, she hits her head, she gets mobbed, she has to be rescued repeatedly. So it's like, objectively, she's not all that lucky. Um, and you have Louis arguing that any bad thing that happens to her is like to make her mature and grow up. And so therefore, it's part of her luck factor. Um, you know, but to me, that's, that's like his own insecurity. He's like afraid of a woman that's more powerful or smarter than he is. Um, and so to me, he comes across like a very unreliable narrator and he's, he ropes Nessus and speaker to animals into believing that about her. Um, so, you know, they, they have this kind of Scooby-Doo interaction where it's like they kind of build off each other. They tend to overreact to things. Um, and so, yeah, Louis like, well, she, it's her luck factor. And then they, they, he gets them into it. Yeah, um, let me just explain. Nessus is the puppeteer, and speaker to animals is the Kazin. I don't think we explained that. Oh, yeah. But um, and then so Raj, you said you hated this whole this whole luck thing. Well, so for a novel that's sort of like half grounded in this hard science fiction physics of how the ring world works, then to have like you know luck be a, a trait that could be bred in humans just seems like way out there. And you know, I, I can get down with some psychic stuff, and then. I could have maybe gotten down with the idea that if it's a psychic ability to influence luck in small ways, that would make sense. And that's sort of how they like I could have gone with that, I think, a little bit of the way. And that's how they introduce it. But I mean, essentially, you know, as Abby just said, you know, it, 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 she's not 
strictly lucky. She, the, the way it happens in the end is that she had like a destiny that was sort of built in that all of everything that happened to everyone in this book was to make her reach that destiny, which to me is like, that's not luck. No, no, that's, that's like, that's like magic, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, yeah. And, or, or that's what Louis thinks, right? Exactly. So maybe, maybe he is wrong, but it, it, you know, it's like, that's such a huge plot point in this thing that it just, you know, when it got to that point and it became all about that, that's the reason why we're here. That's the reason all this happening. I was just like, oh, please, God, no. You know, like that, it just felt wrong. And it's an excuse to create, there are two female characters of any note in this book. One is infantilized and like naive to the point of, you know, she's very clear to say she's not, she is intelligent, but she's naive to the point of idiocy, the way she's described. And then the other one is a literal whore. Like that's, those are the two female characters in this book. And I, you know, that sort of, I agree it, it, and, and I don't think it reflects just purely on Louis's point of view. I think it reflects on Larry Niven's point of view, which is, that, you know, problematic, I think. So that was the thing is I couldn't tell if he was self-aware or not. <laughs> I couldn't tell as, a, as the author, if he knew what he was doing or not there. Yeah, see, my, my, my interpretation of it was that um, he introduces Tila as this, um, this airhead. She's kind of a literal, you know, she's an airhead when we meet her. She's um, uh, not as interesting as the other characters. She's not restless like, like Louis is. She's, all she serves as is a sex object. You know, Louis says, oh, it's, she can come along so I have somebody to sleep with. So it's, it's really offensive, even by 1970 terms. Um, that the character would be so objectified and uh, even more monstrous. Like later on, they say she's unable to empathize because right. she's right. never experienced any pain or suffering because she's lucky. Um, but then Niven, my, my, and in my interpretation is that Niven tries to, to create a reversal and say, you know, you know, I've been portraying this character as this airhead and this, you know, this, this, this passive character, but guess what? She has a special superpower. And she's the most powerful member of this group. So, so I've tricked you because, boy, she's so powerful. But for me, it didn't work because the power that she has is totally passive. She has no control over it. Basically, she's she's um, um, subject to this power that's beyond her, and it's you know it's moving her like a chess piece. Um, the, the 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 conclusion at the end is that this as as Raj said that this whole novel is her luck moving these players in the chessboard just to get her to that planet so that she could be protected from the radiation wave when it so, comes well, in. And, and, so she, and so she can find, and so she can find the man. <laughs> so that's really all of that is, is offensive. I thought, but that's what Louis thinks, you know? So I, I like, I think he's an unreliable narrator. I think he's like deluded. Yeah. Could be. I mean, that's, that's my interpretation I, that, that work could work because you're right. It, um, Otherwise, it's it's pretty offensive. I would prefer if there was a bit more of a stronger sense that maybe, right, maybe he's wrong, maybe Nessus is wrong, and maybe this luck thing does not exist, and they think it does as the only way to justify that a whole bunch of bad shit happened just because, you know, they went to a place and crashed and whatever. But, uh, but yeah, it just, it, the, the, the fascination with that point by the characters or the author was too much. Um, and I, that's yeah. why I mean by like these two thought experiments, sort of like the one thought experiment of the ring world, the other one of like, oh, luck being bred, is that possible? And then like, you know, sort of sandwiched with a, a middle of like very lackluster characters. So 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the way that um, that Tila is portrayed, I mean, like, there's there's reasonable plot reasons for why she should be so naive and so, um, you know, helpless and spoiled and all this stuff. And so I, I could get behind that if the book seems actually interested in exploring her character and, like, what would it be like to have lived your whole life being lucky and, like, what, how would you act and how would you think and everything, but... Like we almost never, she's never shown really doing much of anything except kind of crying and um, and being uh, clueless, you know. And and everything interesting about all the interesting observations about her are just like uh, Louis in his head thinking things. And so I think I would need to be shown, not told, some of that stuff. And I mean, just my subjective impression as a reader, and I don't, I don't know, like I don't know Larry Niven or anything, but it just seems like he's not super self-aware, at least in this book. Like I don't get a, I th- a sense of like a lot of self-awareness around the gender <laughs> issues and stuff in the book. Um, but I that's think just Tila. My- Sorry, yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt. I think Tila's okay. a MacGuffin. I don't think she's like she's never drawn as an actual character. She's basically a plot device in the form of a character uh, that literally manipulates the plot, but has no sort of. You know, like you said, we we get we get way more into the psychology and background and personality of the other three characters, but never her. You know, except that she likes to have sex and she's really naive and is never you know she's never even stubbed her toe, um, which you know again kind of crazy. Yeah, but uh, the um the book spends a lot of time in Louis Wu's perspective thinking about her. It's obsessed with her. Louis is obsessed mm-hmm. with her. Um, and I think that that's the author working through his feelings about romance relationships and like the changing societal norms of 1970. Yeah. I mean, that's how, it, that's how it comes across to me, but I, I agree with you, Raj, that, I mean, the, the, as soon as the luck thing came in, I was like, oh, this is so stupid. And I, I hated it the whole time I was reading the book, but then just before we started recording, I'm like, I think that you could save this, at least for me is like if you just had like a better line of bullshit to explain this, right? Cause it's going to be bullshit no matter what. But I was like, what if it was something more like the, um, you know, uh, Philip K. Dick has the story of the golden man where there's this alien or something. I forget the details, but it, it sort of like sees the, um, the, 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 the spectrum of future possibilities and can pick which one that wants to end up in. And like, if it was explained to me in this way that like, no, like people with these luck genes, like, they're sort of telepathically linked through like quantum mechanics, blah, 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 to future versions of themselves. And they have this intuitive sense of what what choices they would make that is going to result in these happy uh, future, you know, psychological states. Like if there was just like something like then it would get rid of the sort of like destiny, omniscient, omnipotent plan kind of stuff. And it would just be like, no, they're just like they, they have this intuitive sense of what course through the future is going to result in them being the happiest i think if there was just something like more like that yeah no i, I, I agree with that if she were a little bit more active you know because right now she's the embodiment of passive uh, passivity you know she her power operates in a way that's beyond her she's just being moved around um so but, if, uh, raj had suggested earlier if, if it was maybe more limited i was thinking of uh raj in the um amazing spider-man the the character the black cat character has Okay, so superpower yeah. where she has, she can manipulate luck in a, in a kind of a small way, something like that. But 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 uh, this gets to the point David was making about uh, becoming almost like destiny moving her, as opposed to she having any say in it. Um, or so, so Louis thinks. I, or I so Louis think, thinks. <laughs> yeah, I still think that she literally doesn't have a luck factor. It's not a thing. 
Yeah. Well, that would be I, cool. I think it's <laughs> if that was the case. That would no, be that's a much, what I think. A much cooler, much cooler book. Right, and I think, but I think it needs a little bit harder. You know, like it, there needs to be more hints that it could be false, other than you know, because everyone else in the book seems to believe it. But I just, I still have a problem. So like she ends up becoming basically an object, an object of desire for Louis, an object to kind of, uh, you know, help shape the plot. Uh, we have Kazin females are told, we're told they're non-sentient. We're told that puppeteer females are non-sentient. And then. No, they, they the, said they're a, a gender. I think the puppeteers are all female. Oh, okay. Okay. So the other gender is non-sentient. You're right. I don't think they specify female. But then at the end, Tila ends up with a guy who in their society, women are slaves. Um, and then we have that other woman who is literally a, 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 she, she's one of three women who are on the ship only because they're prostitutes. And she's been alive for so long that her, her primary skill is knowing how to do sex really well. Um, so. And I just, I feel like that, all of that stuff, like maybe if you had one or maybe even two, but like all of those things together, I found it really, really disturbing. Yeah. No, I mean, because it's, 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 there's no counterexample to it, really. That's I totally, the 1960s. I, I, I totally agree with you, Raj. I mean, like, I mean, and I, I, I kind of like, in general, the sort of like libertine like uh aspects of sort of 70s sci-fi and this idea that like oh sexual mores were different in the past and they could be a lot mm -hmm. different in the future and we're not like everything doesn't just have to be the values of 20th century american society etc cetera, etc cetera. but like yeah i just found it off-putting in this specific example for and, the reasons that you're saying and it's um, not really like that because he tells he tells prill oh you know if you come back with me we, you know, we don't, we don't have bald women. So you're going to have to wear a wig. Like that's a big fucking deal. Like if they're so sexually free and whatever, like why should that matter? Like I, th that blew my mind because it, it took this, this whole supposedly free sex future then becomes very conservative and like based in, in traditional gender norm kind of stuff, which didn't, I mean, he, they talked in the beginning how they could change their, their faces and their skin colors and their hair and stuff. And like that one line, I was just like, really? Like what's going on here? Yeah, one, of my, one, of my, one, of the, one of the lines I liked was when, um, we should talk about the TASP. Which is, right. um, which is, uh, the, the puppeteers have this which weapon. didn't work all that well in the end. No, no. Which, uh, which creates ecstasy in people. It's like a beam of ecstasy and they kind of, it's almost, it's orgasmic and it, it, it trained it, people become, um, uh, addicted to it. And, uh, you know, when, when, the, when the beam stops, they don't, you know, they, they, they lust for it and they become enslaved in a way. Um, but there's a, there's a line that towards the end of the book, Raj, uh, this, this is to your point about the way women are treated in the book where Louis says, every woman has a task. Oh, right, right. <laughs> we're all, we're all enslaved to women in this way. That's what men thought about women in 19, he, this was written in 1970 as the first published in 1970. Yeah. So, I mean, he's coming from that background. No, I understood. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but this is why, like, if, if you were to ask me, like, would I recommend this book? I would not recommend it to non-science fiction fans because of the the gender stuff. I think it's just going to turn off like such a huge percentage yeah. of of contemporary readers. So I, I think this is really just for the hardcore science fiction fans. Like if you if you think the the idea of the Ring World is really cool and you want to see it, you know, in action and you want um you know a sense of the history of science fiction because this is an important uh, book in the history of science fiction, no question. Um, you know, that that's who I would recommend reading it. But I do think just like some of the issues Raj is talking about, et cetera, is is 
that does sort of render this not a good book to recommend to and, and to I will say in that modern age yeah just in terms of you know that being sort of par for the course back then I mean Left Hand of Darkness which we talked about on this po- on a previous podcast that came out in 69 so a year before this and so there was sort of like this you know there were authors doing more interesting things with sex and 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 uh you know gender relationships and things like that so it it wasn't just that everyone was writing these kind of crazy male oriented you know uh uh sex fantasies so uh, but yeah fair there was a lot of that there was a lot of that definitely it's just that i go in with that expectation when i'm yeah. reading something this old yeah Sure. Yeah, but, sure. but but uh, what do you think, Abby? About like, would you rec- Who would you? Who, if anyone, would you recommend this book to? I mean, I, I've said this before, but books written in this era or earlier, you know, I go in with an academic mindset. I'm reading it not as a modern reader, um, but I read it in the context of the time it was written in. Um, so, people that are interested in golden age sci-fi, um, whether <laughs> whether they grew up with it or whether they're interested in it for academic reasons. Um, that's what I'd recommend it. That's the kind of people I'd recommend to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a bunch of notes here. I don't think we're going to have time to get to all of them, but I guess, does anyone have any just uh, overall uh, topics or observations about the book that they, they want to make sure we get to before we run out of time? Um, hmm. Oh, you know, uh, just, just quickly, I noticed that the, they talk about booster spice that prolongs, <laughs> uh, prolongs the lifespan and, and they have uh, the, the puppeteers breeding humans in a certain way to give them superpowers. And I couldn't help but think of Dune, which should come out, I guess, five years, 1965, it was published. Um, just that, that was just a side point that jumped out at me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Did the, spy, the, the spice idea come from Dune? I don't know if um, how early the boost, how how early the booster spice got mentioned in any of the known space stories or anything. Um. I think the first, I think um, Larry Niven's first story was 62, if I'm remembering right. So it could have theoretically, you could have theoretically mentioned it before, too. Hmm, Interesting. I do think um, they're all very destructive towards the end. (laughs) You know, they're they're dragging this massively destructive thread, leveling cities behind them. Um, You know, they're very, they treat death and destruction very, very casually. Um, You know, they all thought that Teela was dead and they're like, oh, well. Get a get a new woman, um, <laughs> you know. All right, no, no, like like they had a christening ceremony, four different christening ceremonies for the new ship, but no, no funeral for Tila. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, and they just treat. Yeah, it, it's like they're very casual, like they're very dismissive towards the need of savages and all that. So, I uh, I agree. There, yeah. there was a point at the end where you know something falls from their floating castle as they're cutting it, you know, to make it flat, I guess, on the bottom. And it falls in the midst of a bunch of people. And then not too long afterwards, Speaker is just used swinging his laser through a crowd of people because they saw them use the energy weapon. And I was just like, when did this happen? Like, because it, it just seemed, like you said, it was treated so casually, like, ah, we need to get out of here. So fuck these guys on, on this ring world. Um, and yeah, it, it, it was really, really disconcerting to because it sort of seemed to emerge out of nowhere, right? Yeah. Well, well, does everyone agree that this sort of seems to become like a it, it like falls into the rhythms of a pulp science sure. fiction adventure story, like a lost, you know, like a lost world or like a spar zoom or something where, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of fighting and it's not, you know, reflected on really. It's just an adventure story. Yeah, no, no question with the floating cities and with uh, Tila winding up with Conan the Barbarian. Right. <laughs> 
Yeah. I'll also say like the, the level of the prose, um, you know, like, like his word choices were very simplistic and things were, were not always clear. It wasn't always clear what was happening. Oh, I have one complaint. And that's like, if you're going to introduce newfangled swearing, come up with more than one word because tans just kept being like thrown around for everything. And I'm like, we have so many different curse words in our language, you know, like come up with a few. So, yeah. Yeah. I actually did a little, cause I was pretty sure that had come from Heinlein, the tange. And, uh, oh. apparently he did, he, he had the phrase, there ain't no justice in some of his books. And I, I think Niven was, was the first to make it an acronym, uh, according to my, my, Googling. Oh, that's what it stands for. Uh, yeah. Wow. Interesting. Uh, and then he also talks about finagle, and apparently I'd never heard of this, but there's something called finagle's law, which is sort of like Murphy's law. It's like a variation on Murphy's law. And huh. John W. Campbell used to reference it all the time in his astounding magazine editorials. So, hmm. you know, because Niffin he is like very heavily influenced by by Heinlein and the Campbell school of science fiction. That you know, so this is like there'd been the new wave of the of the '60s, and then Niven's kind of part of the the crowd that's like now like we like science fiction just fine the way it was let's let's do the like stick with the science and engineering and adventure and just going into outer space and all that kind of stuff oh the the other thing i'll say is like briefly is that when they find out that you know the the puppeteers have been influencing both humanity and the kazin they get so upset for so long and I get it that it, there's this feeling that we've been manipulated, but like they take, like Tila takes it so personally, like that she's been genetically engineered. And I, I don't, I didn't get, it just felt so um, disproportionate, the reaction to, to what was being revealed. Like, oh yeah, you guys are bastards and that's really creepy. And that really, you know, concerns me and upsets me. But like, it was almost like it was specifically targeted against them. And, and it took like, you know, a, a couple chapters for them to calm down or something like that, which I felt yeah. it just well, rang wrong like, to me. She's like sobbing hysterically for multiple right. days in a row. <laughs> right. I mean, it's like really, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get that at all. Yeah. I understood the Kazinti's reaction. I think that, sure. that for, for his character, that makes more sense. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it's also like, I mean, it's, yeah, like it's, it's, it's sort of annoying to know that you were part of a genetic experiment, but it's like, oh, I was part of a genetic experiment to make me like lucky. And to give me right. this like superpower, right. it's it's you know you would think there would be some level of uh, ambi- or, uh, ambivalence about that, you know, mm-hmm. not just the sheer, you know, emotional de- devastation. Well, that's why why their interactions, um, their interactions to me came across kind of Scooby Doo like, where it's like they just really build off each other. <laughs> yeah. Wait, what do you what do you? explain that what what's the scooby-doo that's just how the character characters in scooby-doo are just like super emotional or yeah yeah like like um you know oh my gosh you know there's a ghost oh everybody run there's a ghost oh, no, <laughs> right. no, you know? <laughs> oh it just it's just a man in a suit oh, okay let's all calm down let's all calm down you know <laughs> and the way louis gets her to calm down is like well if they didn't do that genetic manipulation, you wouldn't have been born. And she was like, Oh, right. And I'm like, that's the whole, that's why it's so stupid in the first place. It's, it's, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I, that, that just, again, was a, something. I just, certain things just rang false for me or didn't, I couldn't get a handle on. They didn't seem right to me. So I think that was part of my issues with, with following these guys. What do you think? Like, do, do we even need the Prill character at all? 
Like, should that character just not be in the story at all? Or does she serve some important function? Uh, she answers the question of uh, yeah. what happened to the engineers and what happens if you act like, like, is there anybody else acting like a god? She answered a few questions for them. Yeah. yeah. In terms of the I engineer. mean, because there's, is there no, I don't know, is there no, it seems like she, someone else maybe could have answered some of those questions. There could have been some other way they found out the answers to some of those questions. That yeah. True. She kind of just slips into the role of Louis's lover at the end. Yep. That's a or it. sex object. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, there's Why that one point object? where he's like, she's beautiful, like below the, like he, he's not into her face, I think, because she doesn't have hair, but like her body is amazing. And it's just like, again, like, oh my God. Um, oh, and he thinks oh. she looks really blank. Her her features are just really boring and blank. And she just looks dumb right. as far as he's concerned. But I just read it as like unreliable narrator. Although yeah. I couldn't tell if the author was self-aware or not. So that was just kind of driving me crazy. It's like, is he aware? About this? <laughs> oh, what, one because last thing. I, I, I was going to say, before we depart this subject, one thing Louis says that's positive of Prill is, um, here's, I'm just reading from the book. You're smarter than I guessed, Louis told Prill that night. <laughs> right. He hesitated then, but he didn't know enough of the language to be tactful. Smarter than a ship's whore ought to be. Right. <laughs> it's crazy so there you go he's um, complimenting her <laughs> wait I, I have something i want to add on the subject too because you know there's a part where when they first encounter prill um uh, uh nessus says to louis quote when the girl appears act friendly louis you may attempt to have sex with her if you think you might succeed and i actually thought that was really good because it sort of shows the aliens who don't like have um like you know co-equal genders that they just don't understand how this would be mm -hmm. a uh you know, almost certainly doomed, an extraordinarily risky gambit to attempt. But then he actually does start having sex with her. So I was kind of like, it, it's again, there's like, there's this stuff that like would kind of work if the book were self-aware about it, but it feels mm -hmm. like the book isn't self-aware. Uh, to me, it feels like the book isn't self-aware about any of this stuff at all. But I, I agree with Abby that, you know, if you, if you sort of like went through this and made all the, you could take the, take this basic um, sequence of events and just actually delved into the psychology and explored the psychology and made it, yeah, and brought some level of self-awareness to it. It could actually be really interesting. I just sure. don't think that level yeah. of self-awareness is actually there. I think yeah. any, any, and you're, you're like, I think you're, you're the, the reader would have to sort of like do all that work. You know, I don't think any of that is actually there on the page. I think it was the prose that was lacking. You know, like he, he wasn't describing fight scenes very well either. No. Oh, well, that was one of my, the last thing I was going to say is that there are certain scenes that I think would have been more exciting to actually see what was happening, but he sort of cuts away. And then later on, Louis tells us what happened. Like, for example, the, the one that jumps out of my head is when the puppeteer kicks that, you know, the guy's running for him and he kicks with his back leg and like kills him. And there's a mention of like bloody footprints and whatever. But then later on, you hear they figured out that like, oh, they have a, uh, defensive you know kick response they're not really running away or whatever and it's like why not just show us that scene that would have been so much more interesting and then you tell us oh i figured out that this is some kind of like defensive technique but several times he does that where he sort of doesn't explain what actually happened and then later on fills us in and i'm like i don't get i didn't i just didn't get that as a stylistic choice to me it's always stronger to show us a moment of you know, excitement that he then later can fill in the blanks on, but you know, I, I guess that's, he has a different stylistic choice. So. 
Yeah. You know, that, that, kind of, that kind of jibes with, with, with Abby's interpretation of this is all in Louis's head because it's Louis yeah. who says, isn't it Louis who says, well, he's, then maybe they're not really that afraid. Maybe the reason right. they're turning away is because then they can attack with their hind legs. <laughs> so um, maybe, maybe it is all, all in Louis's head. All these things about luck. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, well, I think like the generous interpretation is the author is aware of all of that. He's in, he's aware that Louis is an idiot, <laughs> like an egomaniacal idiot, um, who's just ha- haplessly in this whole scenario. But he didn't show it very well to the readers. Like, mm-hmm. like he's just unable to show, he had trouble showing the action, some of the engineering, like all of that was kind of lacking. Like, like the descriptions were lacking. So yeah, I, I think it's possible he just wasn't describing the psychology either that well. Yeah, I, I just found it seems really obvious to me that the book was that the author was running out of gas toward the end of the book. Like just reading it, I'm like, I, I know what it's as a writer. I know what it's like to be writing stuff like this and just feel like uh, I've just like I don't have any energy left. Like, <laughs> you know, like at the beginning, I was more into this and I was describing things better and had all worked out all the stuff really well. And then I'm just sort of like trying to get to the end. And, and that's really what it felt like. Just the even like the last chapter the last scene it just seems like it just like stopped you know it's like and we'll come back to the ring world someday in the in the sequel or whatever <laughs> right and it's that, like, was wait, a, that was a pretty weak closing sentence i agree with that but isn't it usual usually an editor that will come back in and be like let's punch this up so that it matches the, i mean like you know what i mean like i get it when you're writing it but then to prepare it for publication it seems like they might have done a little work there i don't know yeah i agree with that 100 percent and it, it's weird because, you know, I, now I'm wondering, because I, I just loved so many Niven's books and stories that I read when I was younger. Now I wonder if I go back, will it, will it be like this, you know, or is it just like, is some of his other stuff better? Because boy, in my memory, a lot of his stuff seems really, really good. Oh, also, I got to, I got to, I got to tell you, David, I feel exactly the same way because I, I love the Niven books and I love, um, um, the Moat in God's Eye. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of my favorite, Lucifer's Hammer. Those are all great books in my mind. So I'm a little bit afraid now to revisit them. <laughs> this this book won the Hugo Nebula and Locus Award. Like, I mean, it, it, it's a lauded, you know, respected book. And again, 1970, 1971 was probably a very different time in, in you know, the fiction or science fiction world. But, but, I mean, that was one of the reasons I went back to it. And again, like the ones that were winning around that early 70s period, this one feels like an outlier to me. But obviously it resonated with a bunch of people. I wonder what it was up against. I should check that out. Yeah, I mean, I I wonder if it was just sort of like a, a reaction to the new wave, you know, and you had stuff like Left Hand of Darkness, you know, and then there were people like, ah, this, I liked the, the Campbellian stuff more. Let's all vote for this. It's in the Campbellian yeah, maybe. mode. Could be. Um, but, um, but yeah, like, like, yeah, like those stories like Neutron Star and At the Core, like The Long Arm of Gil Hamilton, uh, The Legacy of Hirat. Like, I remember them being so good. I don't, I don't remember being like annoyed by the characters the way I was in this. And maybe it was just because I was a teenager or whatever when I read them. But I mean, and, and so, yeah, like at least without having reread them, it's hard to say, but I would definitely, if you want to read Larry Niven, I think most people probably start with ring world. And in my sense, it's like, it's probably not the best place to start. I would start with some of those, some of those other things. Um, uh, especially since, like I said, like, because this draws on some of those earlier stories so much, it seems like it would make more sense to, to start with some of the, the stories that lead up to this that are, are sort of more engaging um, to me, at least. Um, uh, one thing I, I wanted to just throw out there is so um, there's a part where they're uh, they're flying over the ring world 
And it says, uh, as Louis dipped low, it became clear that all of the haphazard meandering channels that made up the delta had been carved permanently into the land. The Ringworld artists had not been content to let the river dig its own channels, and they'd been right. The soil wasn't deep enough when the Ringworld artifice was necessary. And I'm reading that. I'm like, I have to wonder if Douglas Adams read this, because there's the the Slardy Bartfast character in, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy who won all the awards for carving the fjords in Norway. <laughs> right. And it just sounds so much like that. I, I just wonder if, I was just wondering as I was reading that, if that in particular inspired that. Because um, this obviously has been a really influential book. You know, lots of people, I think probably everyone at the time read it. And, you know, like um, like Terry Pratchett, like his Discworld, you know, sort of was inspired by the Ringworld. Um, yeah, like you said, I think I forget was it Raj you said like Ian Banks's uh, Orbitals and uh, even I guess I I didn't watch it, but it, there was just an episode of um, uh, the Book of Boba Fett where they go to some sort of like Ring World kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I said it was the Mandalorian, but it was the Book of Boba Fett. You're right; it featured the Mandalorian, but yeah, it, it was very similar and 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 to this. So, so yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah, like I said, I mean, you can't sort of gainsay the the historical importance of this book. Um, sure. I don't know. Do you think do you think our uh, reaction is atypical at all? Or, I mean, do you think most people, if they go and read this in, in 2022, will have the same reaction we do? Or do you think there's like a contingent that's that sort of would have a completely different response to this? I, well, think, I think, yeah. Go ahead, Abby. Oh, I do. I do think that. Yes, um, most people would have the reaction we did. Yep. Yeah, it's 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 difficult to um, to put your mind in this in the sense that let's let me tr- let me transport my mind back to 1970 and read it from that lens. Um, you know, as I, I read it back in the 19, 19- I read it in the 1980s, and uh, I was I was a young kid, and I, none of this stuff bothered me, and um, I didn't. You know, none of it registered, and I thought it was a fantastic classic. And um, I still think that, and I still think it's it's, it's a classic in the sense of sense of, sense of wonder, and um, that it manages to evoke that still in certain sections. Um, but overall, you know, it was it was less of an enjoyable reading experience because of the, the twenty twenty two you know person that I am. So this uh, is currently being adapted for TV uh, by Amazon and MGM. Hmm. Uh, Akiva Goldsman has written the pilot, and oh uh, one of the Game of Thrones directors, Alan Taylor, is attached to direct the pilot. I don't know if that's actually that hasn't actually happened so far, as far as I know. But how does everyone feel about this being turned into a TV, into a TV show? I mean, it, it, to your point, you know, if, if some of these, we, you know, we've said several times, I think some of these ideas could be kind of fixed and developed better. And that's something that some of these TV shows have done with, with you know, even some older, older uh, concepts that, you know, might have had problematic sequences and, you know, they've managed to address those. So it could be good, I suppose. And if they really capture that whole ring world magic, but um, it could e- equally be terrible, right? If they try to hew too closer, you know, I, I think that the, uh, I don't know if you've talked about the foundation on here, um, David. Yeah, but, uh, Abby like, was on yeah, the panel. I was just on the, that one. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I personally was not that excited by the foundation, but I know some people were, so maybe it would be something more akin to that. I don't know. Well, we felt that they had changed it too much, the foundation. Right. 
Um, whereas this, I, I, I think it's, it. Oh, go ahead. Ab. Well, I mean, I, I thought like it, that's something that's so hard to adapt. Um, it, but it was just kind of lacking in some intellectual conflict, but I, I didn't mind that they tried to change it. I think they needed to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It seems almost inevitable that they would change this. I mean, like I would just expect that they would take the idea of the ring world and the crew going to explore the ring world and come up with basically an entirely different plot. Like, I think the genetically engineered luck thing is is sort of barely viable in prose form. And I just think if you had actors talking about it, it would just come across as completely ridiculous. <laughs> so I, I, I would imagine they would come up with something completely different for that. Um, but um, no, yeah, I, I, I agree with you, David. I think that the, I could see this being turned into something really fantastic because there's no way that they're going to adapt some of the things that bothered us into this, into the TV series about the way that the female characters are treated, that'll be fixed. And the, the setting will be phenomenal and they just need to come up with a better, a better plot, I think. Uh, and, and oh, the, no the, problem. The, Hollywood does that all the time. Yeah, <laughs> <sure>. <laughs> but I mean, the, the, the essential plot is that they crash on the ring world without meaning to, and then they need to figure out a way to get back. And so I think if the, the show is just them exploring the ring world and trying to figure out ways to get out of there, and they actually like show us more about the civilizations, that's the thing. He touches on these things, and then you barely get a sense of you know, how they live, what they're doing, except that they're just the primitive yeah. civilizations. And I think if they delve into, you know, you have a whole episode where they're in a village where they're trying to figure out, you know, how to talk to these people and what they're doing. And there's a storyline or whatever that where they have to help them to do a thing so they could get a piece that will help them get to the next place or whatever. I mean, like that kind of shit they could easily do with the TV show. And I think that's what they would have to do because, you know, again, you need other characters for them to interact with and to, for us to learn the history of this, this object, you know, um, and if it's not a mini series, you want to give them places, you know, room to keep continuing um, season after season, right? Yeah, I, I was really surprised how little interaction there was with the people who live on the ring world. So, other than yeah. to just murder them willy nilly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was um, the big disappointment to, for me too. That it was so boring. All it was was just some people, you know, some some bedraggled remnants of a civilization living in the ruins. And that was it. It wasn't very exciting beyond that. And they talk about pretending to be gods and then they never actually really do it. Like Louis goes down and then sort of decides just to tell the truth. And that turns out really poorly for them. So like I, you know, not that I, you know, even if it's ethically dubious to pretend to be a, a god, I thought that after talking about it so much that they would really like give us a scene where that happened. And it, but it sort did. of, well, yeah, it's, it's all in like, um, you know, it's a summary. It's all summary. Yeah, right. It's summarized yeah. later, but I wanted to see that actually play out. You know, I thought that that would be interesting, especially with the Kazin as the, you know, warrior thing. And then like that never happened. So, um, yeah. It was told and not shown, but it, it happened. It was just kind of like in a few paragraphs. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I think yeah. a lot more needed to be dramatized of those kind of things. Um, yeah. Actually, I found, I found a nice description here. I want to read it. So. Being a god affected speaker oddly. One night he spoke of it. It does not disturb me to play a god, he said. It disturbs me to play a god badly. What do you mean? They ask us questions, uh, Louis. The, the woman asks questions of Prill, and these she answers. And generally I can understand neither the problem nor the solution. The men should question, uh, should question Prill too, for Prill is a human, and I am not. But they question me, me, me. Why must they ask an alien for help in running their affairs? And then Louis answers, you're a male. A god is a kind of symbol, said Louis, even when he's real. You're a male symbol. Ridiculous. 
I do not even have external genitalia, as I assume you do. Um, I'm going to stop there, just because, but I just love that line. I love that line with the kazin. I had to, I had to work that in somehow. But again, weird gender stuff there. Like, of course, the women, like the the men, couldn't ask the woman human. They she had to, <laughs> I know, they had to ask I the know. other man. I mean, come on. I know it was everywhere. Well, let me read. I I, I liked this part. Uh, so um, uh, so at one point, um, the kazin, uh, speaker to animals, he he says. Kadapt's preacher believes that God the Creator had made man in his own image. And Louis says, man, but Kadapt's preacher was a Kazin. And Speaker says, yes, you kept winning, Louis. For three centuries and four wars, you had been winning. Kadapt's disciples wore masks of human skin when they prayed. They hoped to confuse the Creator long enough to win a war. I thought that was super cool. Like, that, that's there's cool. like, there's like stuff that they could take, you know, and, and sort of put into a, t- adapt into a TV show. Um, and there's also, I mean, there's like eight other books or something that are in this sequence, the ring world. I haven't read any of them, so I don't know how good they are, but it seems like with that much material, there must be enough stuff that you could like cool stuff that you could take and kind of reconfigure and make a a really cool ring world TV show. It seems to me there's good potential for character interaction between the Kazin and the puppeteer. You know, the puppeteer is like this leaf eating coward. It's basically a carnivore versus an herbivore. Um, Yeah. But yeah. I guess you also then you have the issue of like you have to have, do the CGI for the puppeteer and you know make that yeah work. see that or get that. the Henson workshop. <laughs> Come on, it's a Muppet. <laughs> <laughs> I think that'll that'll be a big you know factor in how good the show is is how well they can pull those kind of things off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just seems it's hard it's hard to have a CGI character be a, a really main character, you know, just because of the cost and the making it look believable and stuff. But I do think... Too bad, since I said, because the puppeteer is my favorite character in this by far. Yeah. But you're right, because, like, the puppeteer is basically a a set of hands above, like, a guy crouching down, so maybe they could (laughs) do it like puppetry. I really think, like, the Jim Henson workshop still has some good stuff. Like, they could do it. Yeah. Um, All right, cool. So we're, we're pretty much out of time, so why don't we start getting into some final thoughts here. So, David, final thoughts on this whole experience of reading Ringworld? Well, look, I mean, this is considered a science fiction classic because it's, you know, it's, it's because of its sense of wonder. It still has that sense of wonder, in my opinion. Still generated what generated that feeling when I read it this time around. Um, you know, it made a big impact on me when I read it when I was 18 years old. So I can't, I can't deny the fact that it, it's effective on that level. You know, but 18-year-old me is not, you know current me um so you know i couldn't help but avoid couldn't help but notice some of the character uh, issues and um the fact that the characters are kind of unpleasant and the way that, that the, the females are treated in the novel um and the exploration of the ring world itself i thought um kind of devolved into somewhat of a um, human-centric uh non-adventure really just kind of them walking around in, in these ruins which was not uh not as interesting as it could have been after you're introduced to this awe-inspiring, gigantic ring world. Um, that was this disappointment this this time around. To in my reading this time around to just see see that that's that's what it, uh, you know, that's what you're exposed to. Um, so um, so that's I guess that's that's my summary. It's still still staggering, still staggering, still wondrous. Uh, the horizons going off into infinity and so forth. Um, but I just wish that the story had been uh, more interesting and the characters uh, more pleasant. Yep. How about Abby? Final thoughts? 
Yeah, similar. Um, you know, I really loved the Oz series when I was growing up, and this did have some of that sense of wonder of you're you're on a new, entirely new world where the rules are very different. You don't know what to expect. But as you guys said, um, you know, they didn't discover anything really just mind blowing. There were a few things like the sunflower field that kind of reminded me of the Oz opium flower field, hmm. um, poppy field, um. Just a, a few things like that. And I, I kept thinking, oh, well, they're, they're probably going to run to the Emerald City or meet some flying <laughs> monkeys at some point. Um, and I kind of would have liked that. But, um, yeah, you know, the characters were not likable enough. Um, Nessus was fun. The Kazin was fun. It wasn't enough for me to want to pick up the next book. Yeah. Yep. How about Raj? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I ultimately found this book disappointing both times I, I went through it. And I guess if, if you want to read it for historical, for its historical, like context, that, that makes sense. But I would say just be aware that from my opinion, it's actively misogynistic all the way through. And, you know, if, if you're sensitive to that, or it's, you know, something you care about, just, you know, go in with open eyes. But I would just generally say, as a, like a recommendation, I tell people if they were interested in sort of similar concepts, read Rendezvous with Rama, which is better in my opinion. It's, it's still humans going out to explore. Well, they're not maybe the same alien, uh, crew, but going out to explore an alien object and trying to figure out how it works and stuff. And that I found way more pleasing. So. It's funny because, you know, I never read Rendezvous with Rama because my dad's review of that was they go to the spaceship and then nothing happens. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's fair. That's actually a fair description. It, that's, exactly, that's exactly right. But, um, but the characters are not unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, so, so I'll, I'll, I'll be curious. I mean, um, you know, to re- I, should, I should probably read that someday too. But I don't know. I'm, I'm glad I read I'm not sorry I read this. I'm, I'm glad to sort of, you know, uh, check it off the list and, and and know for sure what it's about and be able to talk about it. And there's, there's enough in it that I thought was really cool that, you know, um, I think it's worth reading. I just think that, yeah, it's, it's, it's like I said, more worth reading for, for a science, for a hardcore science fiction fan than for pure entertainment. I think that as, as entertainment, it's, it's, uh, you know, maybe a little, you know, it's been superseded, I think by, by, by better fiction. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm glad I read it, and you know, it, I think the the known space universe is is really amazingly cool, and so uh, it was fun for me to also to 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 do the research and and see what other um you know what other uh, novels, what other ideas there were in the different known space novels that I haven't read, and so much of the stuff I was coming across, I was like, oh wow, this is so cool, all the stuff with the aliens and and everything. So um you know, it did make me want to read more Larry Niven, uh, not necessarily more Ringworld specifically, but um, and it did make me curious to go back and, and read some of the th- things I read as a kid and see if they're as good as I remember or, uh, cause I did, I did love them so much as a kid. I um, think I will commit to reading one of his other stories just because I, I, I'd like to check that out. So, um, not to be, so not to end on a complete downer. I, I will, I think I will use the excuse to read more Larry Niven after this. Yeah, definitely read Neutron Star and, uh, at the core, and the first two stories in the long arm of Gil Hamilton. Oh, uh, you should okay. read um, in constant moon. I remember being okay. great too. Thanks. Um, and and the, the, collab- the collaborations with, with Jerry Purnell too, you know, Moten God's eye and Lucifer's hammer. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I don't know, Raj, uh, read those and, and report back. Let me know, let me know what you think, okay. but that's sort of I... what my impression of where, of where you should start. All right. I will. Thank you. <laughs> um, all right, cool. So why don't we wrap things up there? 
So we've been speaking with Rajan Khanna, Abby Goldsmith, and Mercurio de Rivera. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks, David. Thank you. This is great. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Rajan Khanna, Abby Goldsmith, and Mercurio de Rivera for joining us on the show. And remember to check out my book, Save Me, Please, and Other Stories, which is available now on Amazon.com. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.